It's not really a good, there's not a huge punchline. Actually, there was a fire at the fair and they needed water and so they came to me. And in the middle of the night, it's just kind of one of those weird sounds that you kind of like, that could be a bear. As soon as we start leaving that campsite, he's like, I, I literally can't walk. So I like whipped into camp with yeah. the most good story. I was working that one of the husky games. And the boy comes from like up the stairs and he's like, Pretty crazy, right? I think so. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, I think I've read that. We were like, oh, well, the next time we come, we're going to come with Emma. So we're at the wrong airport. Like, what do you do when you're at the wrong airport? You know when it takes the picture at the top? There's this person's hand right in front of my face. And I was getting nicer, and I was like, what are you doing? You're freaking out. Thank you, One of the kind of amazing things that I feel like I've experienced that I think is like a spiritual thing or God thing is like the bridge got shut down because there was like this massive oil tanker that like caught on fire. We were praying and, and all of a sudden like the clouds like part. Like I mean this is like weird. It was like the clouds part and we could see base camp. Well I cannot tell you how uh, glad I am to be here with you this morning. It's so good to uh, thanks. It is good to be with you. Uh, here in Bellingham, those of you joining us in Skagit, thanks for joining us. And in Boca Raton, it's good to be with you as well. As those who are watching the live stream right now, uh, thanks for joining us today. Before we get into this, I do want to say uh, a couple of thank yous. I want to thank Pastor Kip, Pastor Brian, Pastor Scott, Pastor Bill. I want to thank Willow Weston, Jake Locker, and Lori Maldonado for what they've done over the last 13 weeks here at our church in filling the pulpit. It's been absolutely amazing. <clears throat> and when you agree that we are absolutely blessed as a church to have such incredible men and women who can bring the Word of God and point us to Jesus. What an amazing thing. Yeah, absolutely. I also want to say uh, thank you to many of you. The last time I was on this uh, platform in any kind of a speaking uh, manner at all was uh, in May when we were celebrating a 25-year anniversary of being senior pastor and the cards and the notes and the letters and the well wishes. Thank you so much. I, I am so honored. Uh, to be able to be a part of, of this uh, congregation. And I want to thank our elders in this church who give the unique opportunity of things like sabbaticals. I know that many of you don't get that, most of you don't, and I am so grateful for their care for, uh, for me and our pastors and our souls to be able to afford us that. And I want to tell you the last three months have been absolutely amazing for my wife and I, once-in-a-lifetime type journeys. Five days after the sabbatical started, we flew to France, and then we went from the southern border of France and walked 550 miles on the Camino de Santiago across Spain back uh, to the Atlantic Ocean, and then came back to Pamplona, where I joined Ernest Hemingway in running with the bulls in Pamplona, and I'm grateful to be standing with you today uh, on that front. And then we went out and spent some magical days in Paris. It was an amazing time, and came back home in mid-July, uh, mid and then we were met with this unexpected opportunity, this gift, where we got to go to South Dakota and ride a Harley-Davidson motorcycle back across through Mount Rushmore, uh, Sturgis, the, the Black Hills. Um, South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, uh, um, Idaho, and Washington, and back home. And it was absolutely fascinating. And if that weren't enough, in the last week of our sabbatical, we got to go uh, for a couple times to the New Jerusalem. Most of you refer to it as Linden. We got to go to the Northwest Washington Fair for the rodeo two nights in a row. Hello! How much more could you a guy ask for? So it, was, it was incredible. And I, honestly, I could... 
literally spend, this is not pastor exaggeration, I could spend hour after hour after hour of telling you stories of our adventures and our, our time away, but not all of them would be stories worth telling, so it's probably best, not that they couldn't be told, but it just wouldn't be wise to use our time here uh, for those stories. It's probably best for me to stick to a story out of the scripture. I will uh, give you one little uh, piece. Um, when we were riding the Harley-Davidson back, uh, coming across Montana, there was uh, a memory that came when our girls were small. Um, there was a, a, a place in Montana that kind of became a part of our family narrative. It's not even a truck stop. It's just a little hole in the wall, a gas station and a store and different things. And it's called 50,000 Silver Dollars. Some of you have been there. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And our, our, our girls, when they were young, we stopped there every summer for about three summers a couple times. And so it just kind of became a, a part of our family tradition. And so as we were coming across Montana, which, by the way, is a very big state, I was seeing these billboards, and I said, Dora, we, we, we've got to stop at 50000 Silver Dollars. If, if for no other reason, then we could tell our girls we stopped there. So we did and filled up, topped off the tank in the Harley. And then I went into the, the building where, indeed, there are 50000 or more Silver Dollars lining the walls, a little casino. And, and there you can buy all kinds of souvenirs, little uh, arrowheads and decoupage plaques with the footprints in the sand and the Ten Commandments with the burnt edges and everything else you could want to equip your motorhome. And I went over to another part and there was this rack of these coffee mugs, these coffee cups with different sayings and one of them caught my eye and the saying on this coffee cup was bad decisions make great stories. And I kind of started laughing at that because I was thinking about how many times do you sit around a, a Thanksgiving table, a fire pit with some people, and you're telling this story, and it's all funny now, but it really was a bad decision. Now listen, listen, whoa, whoa. I am not advocating making really foolish bad choices just so you'll have something to say at Thanksgiving. That is not what I'm saying at all. I, I'm not saying make some bad choices so that I can tell some great stories at your funeral. Not at all. Because most of us, I think, would agree that while there's an element of truth in that, that bad decisions also can leave physical scars and, and emotional wounds and, and relational regrets, even vocational derailments, issues with the law, financial crisis, spiritual setbacks, not to mention guilt and shame and remorse and a bad reputation. But today, we're going to look at a story that is filled with bad decisions. I don't know that that makes it a great story, but it makes it a story worth telling. It's a story that took place about 3,000 years ago. And, and last May, the last time I preached here, um, I told you that I was going to be doing this. Now, I don't expect that you remember all of my sermons, or especially one from three months ago. This was a long time ago. It was May. The kids were still in school. The days were still getting longer. The grass was still green, and the air was still breathable. And I gave you a sermon, and, and, and you might remember I had herniated a disc in my back, so I couldn't stand up. And I don't expect you to remember that sermon or this point, so I'll remind you. And he goes on, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. I'm going to preach on this one the last week of August, so come back for that. Come back before then, but anyway, we'll get to that. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. give a preacher three months to prepare a sermon that's a very foolish thing to do because as i was finishing up this sermon i realized this is going to be a very long long sermon and and I, and i started thinking what are my options i can talk really really fast that won't work and i can't do that anyway and then i thought i've got two other options i could either preach for about an hour and a half 
or split it into two weeks, but we had our schedule already made. So I hope you have nowhere to go today, because this is a long, actually, you're only going to get the first half of the sermon today, and the second half is next week. I know it's a long weekend, some of you are traveling, we'd love to have you uh, sign on and, and, and do the live stream with us next week, but you're going to get the first half of the this, this story and the sermon today, because I want to give you some backstory to set this up in the context, then I want to give you the story, and I want us to look at the rest of the story. So, are you, are you ready? Okay, so let's go back to that scripture I talked about in May out of Corinthians. It says, And do not grumble if some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. I love that phrase, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Sometimes you might wonder, why does God allow some of these stories? Because what we're going to look at today is really a story, a dark story of some bad decisions. Why does God allow some of these stories in scripture? And I think there's multiple reasons. One is because God doesn't want to sugarcoat the human condition. He doesn't want to make it look like the people of the Bible had this exceptional life that's different than ours in that they made foolish choices, they made dumb mistakes, they sinned as well, and there were consequences. And with that is that those bad stories, those bad decisions serve as a great reminder for us. They're a great warning for us so that we can avoid those pitfalls. We can stay away from some of those same mistakes and hopefully sidestep step some of the personal and collateral damage that comes with that. So this is why these stories are in here. So today, we're going to look at this really, really dark story. It's found in Numbers chapter 16. So if you have your Bible or your device, tablet, phone, whatever you want to follow along, Numbers chapter 16 we will get there, but I want to give you some backstory first, and it's going to take a little bit of time. You ever read a book that was slow at the beginning, and then it kind of got going? Ever go to a movie where it's like they're set, they have to kind of build the characters? This sermon might be a little bit like that, so you're going to, can you hang with me on the front end of it? Some of you are not sure. Uh, hang in there, because I'm going to give you a lot of back, backdrop, backstory. The backstory really, though, is God's design. You see the way that he planned some things. You see his hand. You see how he orchestrated that. And so I want us to talk about some stuff, set it up, set the context, and then we'll get into the story. Now, a good way to do the backstory is to talk about genealogy, which is always our favorite part of the scriptures to read, these long lists of who beget who. Now, some of this, for, for some of you, is going to be review. You went to Sunday school. You were on the Bible quiz team, you, all these kind of things. And some of you, this is all brand new. There's going to be stuff you've never heard about before. We're so glad you're here. It's not a big deal. I might even ask some questions. For some of you, you know the answer. Some of you don't. It's okay if you don't know the answer. Some of you will know an answer, but you're not sure if it's right. Shout it out with great confidence, because we want to make fun of you when you get it wrong. Okay. <laughs> In the first week of this series, Pastor Kip preached about Leah, the unwanted. Leah, uh, you know, had, didn't have the sparkle in her eyes. Some translations say she was weak in the eyes. Tough one to get married off, so they had to kind of pull some strings to make that happen. Little quiz, either from the sermon uh, 12 weeks ago or, or from your own Bible reading. What was Leah's husband's name? Jacob, you are right. Did anyone think Jacob, but you were too scared to say it? Oh, you guys really have never heard this before. This is going to be great. All right. Her husband's name is Jacob, which means deceiver. God changes his name. Anyone know what his name was changed to? Okay, you've heard of that one. Some say, oh, I've heard that name before. Israel. And Israel has 12 sons who roughly, there's, there's some little tweaks in there, but roughly become the 12 tribes of Israel. This becomes the nation. He's the father of the nation. Now, 
Leah, his wife, had four sons. The first one uh, is, is Reuben. He's best known for a sandwich that he's made. We're going to come back to him. Now, uh, Rachel, her, her, uh, her sister, had two sons. The 11th of these 12 sons was Joseph, and uh, Pastor Brian uh, preached about Joseph a, a few weeks ago, and then the final one was uh, Benji, little Benji. He's so cute. But the third son of Jacob, the third son of Leah, was a, a, a man named Levi, very well known for the dungarees that he created. Levi comes along, and he has three sons. We're not going to talk about all of them, but one of them, and this is where for some of you who said, I knew all this so far, I knew it all, this is where it starts getting a little bit hazy. He has a son named Kohath, all right? And Kohath actually has four sons. We're not going to talk about all four of them. I just want to point out two of them. One of his sons is named Amram. In fact, that's just a fun name to say. Go ahead and say it. Amram. And then another son is named Ichar. It's like itching your arm. Say Ichar. Ichar. Okay, so we got these guys. Amram has a daughter, Miriam. She's very important. She's not germane to our story today, so I'm not going to put her on the board. I'm not going to talk about her, but it's not because she's a woman. She's just not in the story today. Are we okay? Save your cards and letters and texts and emails. But he has a son, and his son's name is Aaron. Now, Aaron has a little baby brother. Anyone know? Moses. And some of you are going, oh yeah, I saw that movie. Okay, so Moses and Aaron are brothers. Ichar has a son. Um, he has several, but the one we're going to look at is a son named Korah. Now, this is what I want you to understand because it kind of comes to play. Aaron and Moses are brother. Korah is their cousin. No doubt in my mind that they grew up knowing each other. They were, they were in captivity in Egypt. These were, were close family units. So Korah and Moses and Aaron, of course, Moses was a little bit younger, but they knew each other. They were cousins. They've known each other their whole life. One more thing, and then we'll be done with the genealogy. You still with me? Okay. Aaron has four sons. The first one, we've talked about him, Nadab. Okay. All right. All right. So you remember Nadab. And then he has a son uh, named Abahu or Abihu or something like that. It sounds like a sneeze. Abahu. All right. And then he also has another son named Eleazar. And one more son named Ithamar. Uh, it sounds like a little bit of a list, but it doesn't. Ithamar. All right. Okay. We got that? Okay. So that's the genealogy. You got to understand all this because it all comes into play here. So in this story or the movie, if you saw that part, God wants to bring his people out of captivity of Egypt, and he hand-selects Moses to be their deliverer, to, to bring them out and to take them into what was supposed to be a really quick trip into the promised land. As they're out in the wilderness, Moses is leading this big group of these 12 tribes of Israel, all of these people, all these clans out in the wilderness, and God gives him some instructions about how this new nation is supposed to operate they'd never operated as an independent nation before it's all brand new so it's all being scripted for them and in that are some some information and some some instructions regarding even their religious how they're supposed to relate to god god said i will be your god you'll be my people that you're going to be my chosen people such in the midst of all that 
God gives this instruction to Moses in Exodus chapter 28. Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. So God says to Moses, you get these five guys, and you bring them out, and you let them be priests. Now, you may remember that the role of the priest was to be kind of a mediator between God and Israel, the people. And that the priest would go to God on the people's behalf. Pause there. That was then. We know now, because of what Jesus Christ has done, we all have direct access to God because of the grace and because of the sacrifice of Jesus. We don't need a mediator. Jesus was our mediator. We've got direct access. So we don't need a middleman now, right? That's what's referred to as the priesthood of all believers. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says how God says in that, in that book, he says, you are, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a a, a, a a holy nation, a people belonging to God. But in that day, God had set up this, this office, this duty of these individuals to be priests to go on, to God on behalf of the people. In that, the priests had a lot of duties and responsibilities. We won't go into a bunch of those. One of them, however, had to do with burning incense before the Lord. And God had been very, very specific about this burning incense before him very specific about the recipe for the incense, and it was not to be used for anything, anything or anyone or any other circumstance. It was only to be burned before God. Very specific about who could burn it, how it was to be burned, when it was to be burned, and God was very serious about this. We, we won't go into all the details of that, but the in, incense thing, God says, I, I mean what I say on this one. Well, you can read this on your own in Exodus 30, but Nadab and Abihu decided to cut corners a little bit on the incense thing. They're like, how big of a deal could this be? And God showed them it's a very big deal. They, uh, they did it wrong, and fire came from the Lord and eliminated them. In other words, they died. And it was an example that, listen, when God tells you to do something, he's very serious about that. Follow that. Now we've got an issue because Aaron now only has two sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, and there's all of these people that need a priest. So God gives Moses some more instructions in Numbers chapter 3. The Lord said to Moses, bring the tribe of Levi. Now remember, there's, there's two other arms of this tribe, but this whole, this whole family tree. Bring the tribe of Levi and present them to Aaron, the priest, to assist him. So now this whole tribe comes under Aaron, and they're there to help him and his sons as the priest. The Levites, the Levitical tribe, was referred to as the priestly tribe. In fact, the book Leviticus in the Bible, what's the root word of the word Leviticus? Levi. Why? Because in that book, a lot of it is directed toward the priests on how they're to do their duties, how they're to bring about order in the camp, how they're to keep this nation as God's people holy and set apart for him. So that's what the Levites were to do. So all this whole clan is given to Aaron and his sons to help them out. It goes on. The Lord also said to Moses, I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites in place of the first um, male offspring of every Israelite. Don't have time to go into all that. That's a whole other thing, too. The Levites are mine. Now, we read that, and we might think, man, 
God's pretty greedy, this whole mine, 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 they're mine. He's pretty greedy. Or we might think he's kind of mean. He's like going to take them and make them do everything he tells them. They're kind of like child labor, these slaves, whatever. But what you have to understand, when God says they are mine, what he's saying is they are holy. They are set apart. They are appointed. I hand-selected them. I adore, ordained that they would be set apart for my set purposes. They are, here's the old word, they are consecrated to me. They are taken out of the ordinary, out of the normal, and they're used for my sacred, holy purposes. And so the whole tribe of Levi was set apart for God's holy, sacred. This is a role of great honor, a great privilege, a sacred role. It's, it's, it's an amazing responsibility. As I said, they had many, many different tasks to do, um, and we'll look at some of that next week. But one of them is this. This is the work of the Kohathites. So remember, there's, there's four, uh, three other brothers here, but this, this group, the Kohathites, in the tent of meeting, the care of the most holy things. If you know your Old Testament at all, you know that not just anybody could do these things. So they were set apart for that. That, my friends, is the backstory. Ready to get started? Okay. All right. Are you still awake? Okay, now let's talk about the story. Now we're in Numbers chapter 16, the story, and we're going to refer to the story as Korah's Rebellion, because the Bible refers to it that way. Korah's Rebellion, Numbers chapter 16, if you have uh, your Bibles open to Numbers chapter 16, it talks, it starts off, Numbers chapter 16 starts off, says, Korah, the son of Ichar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, so you got, got some of his clan in here, certain Reubenites, specifically Dathan and Abram, sons of Eliab, and on son of Peleb. None of this is on the quiz, don't worry about it. Became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. So you see what's happening here, is that there's this group of men, and the ringleader is this guy named Korah. He's got these guys together, and they've become insolent against Moses. They are, they're in rebellion. They're, they're discontent. They are disrespectful. They are rude. They're insubordinate. And Korah is stirring all of this up. Now, this isn't just some guys that are a little disgruntled with a few things. These are the leaders of the nation. There's 250 of them. They're the, the, the set-apart tribe. Not only that, but they've been appointed to a special council. These guys are influential. They're well-known. They're difference makers. They're impact players. These are leaders in leadership position. You can imagine what this is like. And they're getting all riled up, and it's going to be this coup d'etat. There's going to be this, this mutiny, this overthrow, this revolution, and Korah is stirring them all up. Here's the issue. Here's what's going on. Korah says, Listen, Moses and Aaron, who do you think you are, Mr. Big Stuff? Who, who, what makes you guys set apart? Remember, cuz, they're cousins. Remember, they've grown up together. Remember, we're all holy. We're all a part of this tribe. We're all equal. We're all in the same playing field. How come you guys are set apart? How come you get to do all this and we do all this behind-the-scenes stuff? You may or may not have uh, been required to read uh, in high school or college uh, George Orwell's Animal Farm. Anybody read that? A few of you? Some of you were required but didn't read it. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's George Orwell's um, little, uh, allegory of the Russian Revolution, where all the animals overthrow the farmer Jones and take over 
the, the barnyard. And there's a rule. All animals are equal. And then the pigs kind of take over, and they change the rule to all animals are equal. Some are more equal than others. Remember that whole thing? Okay, so apparently not either. You ought to read that book after you read the Bible. Okay, so Korah is basically saying that kind of same thing. It's like, we're all equal here, cousin. We're all part of the, We got the same grandpappy as you. What makes you think you're more equal than us? They're like saying, we're tired of being the roadies. We're tired of being the, the backstage crew. We want to be on the stage. We want to be the rock stars. We want to be able to do that kind of thing. And Moses, you know, the Bible says Moses was the most humble man. Moses approaches them not with this, you know, I'm going to get in your face. He approaches them with kind of like in Isaiah where it says, hey, hey, whoa, 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 come, come, let, let's reason together. And this is what it says. Moses also said to Korah, now listen, and I don't think it was a, now you listen here, Korah. I think it was like, now, now listen. Listen, you, you, you Levites, listen, listen. Isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and, and brought you near himself? I mean, you know what happened, right? Isn't it enough that he brought you near himself to do the work at the, and you know when it's all caps, this is a tetragrammaton, this is the unspeakable name, this is yod heh bab heh this is Yahweh, at Yahweh's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them. He's like saying, guys, whoa, 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 slow down. Do you realize what we have? Do you realize who God has called us to be? He's, he's separated us from everybody else. There's a lot of duties we don't have to do. This is a privilege. This is honor. Man, th this is such an incredible sacred role that we have. And God has drawn us near to himself. And he's given us this incredible ministry in his own tabernacle to serve his people. He's brought you and all your, your fellow Levites near himself. But now, you're trying to get the priesthood too. And I don't think this is Moses condemning them. I think it's Moses trying to talk them off the ledge, calm them down, bring the situation under control, kind of diffuse all the anger, say, guys, guys, settle down. You're, you're in this privileged position. In fact, it goes on to say, you can read it on your own this afternoon in, in number 16, that Moses wanted to meet with some of the others, and they said, we're not going to. Just this obstinate, stubborn, recalcitrant heart that says, no, we want to be the rock stars. And so Moses comes up with this idea. Moses said to Korah, okay, you and all your followers are to appear, appear before the Lord tomorrow, you and they and Aaron. Each man is to take his censer and put incense in it, 250 censers in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. I think Moses says, I know what happened to my nephews when they burned incense in an unworthy manner. I know that God takes this burning incense very, very seriously. And I'm going to let God be the judge here. And maybe this is the way that we'll just figure out what's up. Let's do the incense thing. And if you guys think we're all equal here, you think you're all set to be priests, then it won't be a problem, right? You would think that one of those 250 would have said, hey, wait a second. <laughs> when those other guys did the incense deal, you know, I think I'll, I think I'll go back to making the show bread. I, I think I'll go back to garden the. I, you would think one of them would, but there's just this obstinate arrogance. 
we ought to be priests as well. And Moses really, he, he tries to talk them out of it, but he says, yeah, okay, this is what we're going to do. So the next morning, when Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, that was like in the center of the camp, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, that was all this stuff. The glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, the very presence and power of God, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, I kind of like this, step aside. You might want to move just a little bit. <laughs> I mean, if it isn't so horrible, it's hilarious. Separate yourself from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation with some friends or at a dinner or a Bible study and someone says something, maybe they're even being sarcastic or tongue-in-cheek, and it's a little bit blasphemous, and you're just like, I'm going to move here in case lightning strikes there. God says, hey, Moses and Aaron, move over there a second. And here you see the heart of Moses and Aaron. Now, while there is some truth, albeit small, that bad decisions make great stories. In this situation, bad decision had a grave result. Something that they wish they could take back. And again, as I said, Moses, he goes before the Lord and he pleads on their behalf. You, you see this humble heart of Moses. He's pleading on their behalf. They're trying to oust him and he's like, he's going to bat for them. Saying, God, don't take out the whole assembly just because of these guys. Don't. Just don't do that. And God says, okay, then have the rest of the assembly move back as well. Let those 250 men stay up front. Have everyone else step back a little bit. That's probably a good idea. And so they do. And they're probably thinking, well, that's, that's because these guys need to be set apart so we can watch this incense deal. But they all step back. And then uh, Moses addresses the crowd. He says this. If these men die a natural death and experience only what usually happens to men. Now, we know what usually happens to men. It's predictable. They reach mid-age. They get a little crisis. They buy a Corvette. They drive it for a few years. Their knees are so bad they can't get out of it. They sell the Corvette, get a motorhome, spend the winters in warmer climate, get a hip replaced, have prostate issues, death rattle, and then they die. That's normal. It's as predictable as the day is long. Okay, he says, we know. We know what happens to men. This is the usual thing. It's normal. If that happens to these guys, if they live the next 20, 30 years and then die a natural death, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the grave, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. Notice, Moses is not defending himself. Moses has no skin in this game. It's not about his position. It's not about his ego. It's not about his pride. He's not even sticking up for his brother. He says, listen, if we're not the ones, fine. Like, we'll step back gladly. Remember, he was pretty hesitant to even be there in the first place. He says, I'm okay with that. Here's my problem. You guys are treating the Lord Almighty with contempt. And that's why he's saying, like, guys, don't do this. Please, listen to me. And so he just says, we'll let God decide on this one. But it's really not about me. God doesn't want me in this position. Perfectly fine. It's the ultimate throwdown. It's me or these guys, but God's going to make that call. 
goes on. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. They went down alive into the grave with everything they owned. The earth closed over them, and they perished and were gone from the community. Boom. And I can imagine that there was just a hush that fell over the crowd. Whoa. And then there was terror. And everybody, everybody takes off running, which I think is kind of funny, really. If the God, the maker of heaven and earth, wants to swallow you up, I don't care if you're Usain Bolt, you can't outrun God. He'll get there before you. He's already there waiting for you. But they take off running like, I'm getting away from this. And away they go. But there's still these 250. And it's not done yet. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. The exact, exact same thing that happened to these guys. That's the story. I never heard that one in Sunday school. They never did the little flannel board with people going into the earth. and We, we didn't get this story in Sunday school. I mean, I was raised in a preacher's home. My dad read from, us, from Edgar Meyer's Bible story book every night. I don't ever remember hearing this story. And, and listen, I'm not suggesting that you go home and read this to your small children. If you have teenagers... Maybe. If you read it to your teenagers, add this verse again, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel, and then you say, just saying. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord, do with it what you will. <laughs> this isn't a story we grew up hearing all the time. I mean, could you imagine, honey, I'm going to tell you a little Bible story before you go to sleep, and then you tell them this thing? And then you're praying, oh, oh, honey, let me pray for you. If you should die before you wake, I pray the Lord your soul to take. Sleeps well, honey. You know, we, we just don't talk about this. It, it's a really, it's a dark, dark story. It's a story of sin. It's a story of rebellion. It's a story of disobedience. It's a story of the consequences that come with that. It's a story of a holy, righteous God who brings about justice and judgment and condemnation. It's a very dark story. But the reason I think this is a story worth telling is that even while it's a dark story, even while it's in a minor key, even while it's a funeral dirge, even while it's this depressing story, there are these grace notes that resonate throughout the story. These little grace notes where you see how good God is. You see how compassionate Moses is. You see all this thing. One of the grace notes happens later in the book of Numbers. Now, the book of Numbers gets its name Numbers because in that book, they counted people. That's, I know it's not original. I didn't, I didn't come up with it. They call it Numbers because they counted. They did a census. They took more than one census. They, they would count the people. That's why it's called Numbers. So they're getting ready to do another one of these census things. Sensei, well, I don't know what plural of census is, but sensei, sensei. We don't know what it is. So getting ready to count again. And they bring this story back up in Numbers 26. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them along with Korah, whose followers died when the fire devoured the 250 men, and they served as a warning sign. So they want to keep this before the people. Don't forget what happened in our past. Don't make those same mistakes. It was that grumbling against the Lord. It was going against his plan and going against his will. Don't do that. But then there's this little grace note. I don't know if you've ever um, 
been to a movie, and at the end of the movie, regardless of if it's good or bad, at the very end of the movie, it's getting ready to wrap up, it's going to fade to credits, but in that last scene, there's something that gives you this little hint, this story isn't done yet. Like, they're going to come up with a sequel. Like, right as the closing scene, that one guy, the villain or the superhero, whatever that was supposed to be dead, at the very end, this guy turns and he looks at the camera, and it's him. And you're like, oh, the story's going to go on. A few weeks ago, my wife and I went to see Jurassic Fallen Kingdom World thing. The fifth iteration. Why we keep going to these, I don't know. But we went nonetheless. If you haven't seen it and you want to, there's a spoiler alert, so close your ears for a minute. So at the end, it's all getting ready to close down, and then the little girl hits a button, and all the dinosaurs get loose. And I, sorry for some of you. And, and I leaned over to Dorian and I said, that's so they can have another movie. I don't know what, Jurassic Universe, whatever it's going to be. I just read this week, 2021, the sixth iteration of Jurassic franchise is coming out. So, there it is. So, so what I'm saying is this. The story kind of comes to a conclusion. And then the line of Korah, however, did not die out. Like, there's going to be another story here. It's going to keep going. Now, this is where we're going to cut off this part of the story because next week, in the, in the words of, of Paul Harvey, we're going to get the rest of the story. Yes. Now, some of you right now are so excited because this is fairly short for my standards, and you've got all the blanks filled in, and you think, I'm going to, like Paul Harvey, say, good day. I'm not. We're not done yet. I want us to go back into the Korah story and see something that is another beautiful grace note. Korah and his men, if you'll let me use, a, and I apologize, a really horrible illustration. Korah and his men have become this malignant, cancerous tumor in the nation of Israel. And God had chosen Israel to be his device to bring about the greatest blessing in the world, the Messiah of the world, who would redeem the world, who would set all things right and make all things new again. He needed this. He, it was part of his plan. And Korah and his, his group of men had become this cancer that was going to destroy this. And even though they were warned and even though Moses pleaded with them and they were given time and patience, God decides to do surgery to remove the tumor so that the nation can live on. The story with Korah is God saying this tumor has got to go, and it went. The only problem, if you'll let me stay with that analogy, is that it had already metastasized in some other places. And the cancer was beginning to spread, this grumbling. And so God decides that he'll do, again, pardon the illustration, he'll do like chemotherapy to try and get this cleared out so that his nation is pure and holy. And he does it by way of a plague. And so there's this plague that becomes, because the people, it says, the people begin to grumble, and you're like, what are you thinking? You see what happens when people grumble. Why would you ever grumble? They begin to grumble, and so God releases this plague. Again, you see the compassion of Moses. Because while people are starting to get infected by this plague, Moses says this. He said to Aaron, take your censer and put incense in it because you are the priest. You're the one that can do this. You're the one that is the mediator between God and these people. Put, uh, along with fire from the altar, and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. 
Wrath has come out from the Lord, and the plague has started. Aaron, quick, you are the priest. You are the one that goes to God on our behalf. Take your censer. Get the incense. Go and make atonement. So he does. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. This is God's grace. This is a grace note that there was a way that people who were unworthy and sinful and fallen could be redeemed, could be spared, could have atonement made for them. And this, he stood between the living and the dead and the plague was stopped. You know, we sing a song around here, death was arrested. That's what this is. And here is this sin, the grumbling, the disobedience against this holy God. And Aaron, the priest, doesn't say, let them get what they deserve. Aaron runs directly into the infection. And he makes atonement, and he stands between the living and the dead, and death is arrested. The plague stops. This is an incredible picture of God's grace. And it's a picture from the narrative of Israel's history, but it's a microcosm of the meta-narrative of God's redemption story. Because every time there's sin and rebellion and disobedience, it is equated with death. Adam and Eve, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or surely you will die. And it infects us all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death in the midst of it we have all been infected with the plague of sin and there is death that comes with this and not Aaron the priest but Jesus the high priest does not sit back and say let him get what they deserve he runs right into the plague and he says let me get down there and make atonement he doesn't stand between the living and the dead he hangs between the living and dead and while we are yet sinners Christ died for us he makes atonement death is arrested we're given forgiveness grace and life that's the message of the gospel it's Israel's story. It's our story. It's my story. My decisions, my sin that put me on a collision course with death was atoned for not because I'm worthy or somehow did something to deserve it. It's what we sang about this morning. But it's because our great high priest ran in and made atonement. In 1 Timothy, it says this. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone, everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there's one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity. There's no longer need for a priest. We have the great high priest, the one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And this is the message God gave to the world at just the right time.